Morning, Bethel. So if you can turn in your Bibles to Philippians 2, we're going to read verses 1 through 11. That's found on page 980. If you're using the Pew Bible, if you don't have a Bible, there's one in the pew in front of you, and you can turn to page 980. And you can follow along as I read. And if you wouldn't mind, please stand in honor of God's word, and we'll read together. This is God's holy word. From Paul's letter to the Philippians, chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is God's word. You may be seated. Well, good morning. I bring with me greetings from the saints at Grace Community Church who are worshiping the Lord together this morning, just like we are here, and it's such a wonderful opportunity to be able to join in fellowship with you. Special thanks to your elders who have extended this invitation to me, Uh, such a gracious thing for them to invite me to be here, and of course, especially your sweet pastor, Pastor Chris. Uh, Thank you, Chris, for your kind words. Boy, what a, what a friend that Chris has become to me coming up here. As, as he mentioned, I'm from Florida, and as he mentioned, everything good happened to me in Florida, and so I came to Delaware really uh, uh, unaware of anything of what life would be here, uh, except that almost immediately after arriving, Chris was a friend to me, and uh, he befriended me. He was an encouragement to me, uh, and certainly he is a sterling example of a faithful pastor within our own community an example of, of gentleness and faithfulness and thoughtfulness uh, that often excites me to follow the Lord more closely, and, and an example to me that I've learned from frequently, whether he knows that or not, 
so it's such an encouragement to be able to be here and so kind of Chris to allow me to be in his pulpit this week and uh, to, to use this as an opportunity to uh, express our gospel unity with one another and our mutual love for one another. And really, because of the work of Christ, this is a family reunion, even though I haven't met many of you. Uh, it's an opportunity for us to come together under the Lordship of Christ and in pursuit of faithfulness to His Word. And toward that end, I want to invite you to turn with me to Mark chapter 9, Mark chapter 9, verses 30 through 37. I've entitled this morning's message, The Greatness of the Cross. And of course, there are certain events in the history of the world that have cast their shadow over all history, events that have taken place that really have changed everything. If you go far enough back in history, you'll remember when Caesar crossed the Rubicon and essentially ended the Roman Republic. Or maybe even more recently in our own nation's history, the, the bombing of Pearl Harbor and our nation's entrance into World War II. Or, or even more recently, you'll remember the events of 9-11 and, and, and the way that changed the world around us and, and the rise of global terrorism and all that came with that. Events such as these have altered the world in ways that have really made it impossible to go back to the way it was. All of these events have had a great impact on the course of history. And yet, even as there are many events that have impacted history, there's only one event that it was so great that it impacted the world before it even took place. And of course, that's the cross of Christ. The cross of Christ dwarfs every event in human history in terms of its significance and its impact on the world. The cross of Christ is the pinnacle of our human history, and it's even, we can say, the, the pinnacle of God's redemptive history. God's eternal plan of salvation to glorify Himself and save a people to bring Him glory. The, the, the center of that, the apex of that, is the work of Christ on the cross. And in this way, the cross of Christ impacts every person who has ever lived. Whether they believe in the historicity of the cross, whether they believe in the saving power of the cross or not, the cross of Christ will impact every person who's ever lived. Of course, we all have an appointment to stand before our Creator, to stand before the judge of the universe, and, and ultimately, ultimately, the standard by which we will be judged is what we did with the cross, whether we believed it or we rejected it. And in this way, the, the cross has not only a, a historical importance and, and not just a, a redemptive importance, but also a personal importance for every person on this planet. The cross of Christ casts its shadow over all of human history and over every human life. And I mention this to you because as we turn our attention to Mark chapter 9, verses 30 through 37, we find ourselves deep in the shadow of the cross in Mark's gospel. 
In these verses, we're going to find Jesus teaching His disciples about the cross. In fact, in Mark chapters 8, 9, and 10, Jesus three times explains that He is going to be rejected and killed and then be raised from the dead. He's explaining the history of the gospel even before it happened. And in addition to presenting His disciples with this teaching, He's also, in the course of these three chapters, confronting so many of the worldly misconceptions that His disciples have with the truth of the gospel. And what we see in this teaching, in this section, is that the cross changes everything. And as we think through this this morning… If the gospel changes everything for the disciples before it even happened in Mark chapter 9, then certainly we can say for ourselves that the cross must change everything for us as well, particularly, and as we'll see in this passage, the greatest event in the history of the world must change our view of even greatness itself. Look with me at the text of Scripture, Mark chapter 9, and I'll begin reading in verse 30. And here the Word of God says, They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and He did not want anyone to know, for He was teaching His disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill Him. And when He is killed, after three days He will rise." But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, He must be last of all and a servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Here in this passage, we're confronted with the greatness of the cross, and we're reminded that the greatness of the cross must change the way that we think about greatness. And as we kind of parachute into this passage in verse 30, we see Jesus, He's passing through Galilee. And as He's passing through Galilee, He's trying to avoid as much public attention as possible. And this is interesting because earlier in this chapter, you have Jesus transfigured. You have a a preview of of His glorified existence for three of the disciples. And then coming down off the Mount of Transfiguration, there's, there's a huge crowd of people there clamoring to get the attention of Christ, and even one young boy who had a, a demon cast out by Christ. 
So really, in a sense, what we find in the earlier parts of Mark chapter 9 is, is almost an apex in Jesus' public ministry, an apex in the attention that He was gathering and the crowds that were coming to Him. And, and yet now, almost suddenly in Mark's gospel, there's a switch, and Jesus is now avoiding the public eye. And part of the reason for this is that from Jesus' perspective, His public ministry was essentially over, at least in the region of Galilee. At this point, Jesus knows that He is headed for Jerusalem, and He's headed for Jerusalem to die on the cross. In fact, as I already mentioned, in Mark 8, 9, and 10, three times each chapter, Jesus mentions these details that He's going to be rejected or He's going to be handed over, that He's going to die, and that He's going to be raised from the dead. This is where Jesus is headed. And, and in preparation from this, what you see is Jesus trying to peel Himself away from the crowds. And you say, why is that? Well, part of the reason, no doubt, is because Jesus understood that the crowds, in large part, would not receive this message. They were, they were clamoring for the temporal benefits of Christ's ministry or clamoring for Jesus to reign as king at that moment. They didn't understand that as sinners, they needed a Messiah to die for them before they could reign with that Messiah. And so Jesus is, is peeling Himself away from the crowds because they don't want to hear this message. But even more specifically, Jesus is peeling Himself away from the masses so that He can focus on discipling His disciples. In fact, it even says that He didn't want anyone to know where He was, verse 31, for He was teaching His disciples. As Jesus is preparing to go and die on the cross, Jesus is also preparing His disciples for this reality. In fact, the disciples needed to be ready for the cross, not only in real time as it was happening, but also Jesus understood that these men were going to be sent out as apostles, and so it was going to be their responsibility to proclaim this message. They were the sent out ones with the gospel, and so they needed to understand it. And so Jesus is withdrawing with these men so that He can focus on discipling them with the gospel. Notice in verse 31, he gives what we might call the history of the gospel, the details of the gospel, when he says that the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. Now, Jesus has already told his disciples this. Really, there, there are new, uh, no new major details in this verse that have not been previously revealed to the disciples by Christ. But there is a slightly new emphasis. For instance, in chapter 8, Jesus said He was going to be rejected. And yet in chapter 9, He says He's going to be handed over. And here, that's an interesting emphasis considering the words that Jesus used. Yes, Jesus was going to be handed over by Judas. And yes, the Jewish leaders were going to hand Jesus over to Pilate, and yes, Pilate was going to hand Jesus over to the centurions to be killed, and, and yet Romans 4 tells us that ultimately it was the Father who handed over Christ. 
And so even in, in this slightly different nuance here, Jesus is emphasizing in part, look, this is the plan of the Father. Remember when Jesus told his disciples in chapter 8 that he was going to die, Jesus, uh, Peter came and rebuked him. You remember that? Remember Jesus' response? Get behind me, Satan. In other words, Peter, your plan and your perspective is more in line with Satan's plan. My plan is in line with the Father's plan, so we're going to go with the Father, not with Satan. And so here in saying that I'm going to be handed over, he's emphasizing the, 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 the divine, eternal plan that is unfolding in front of them. And, and he also emphasizes that this plan includes that he is going to die. I think in reading through these chapters, that's where the disciples were hung up the most. And yet, if you notice, Jesus is explicit, almost awkwardly so, when he says that they will kill him. And when he is killed, I mean, he repeats himself in almost an awkward way to emphasize, guys, this is going to happen. I am going to die. So what we see here is that Jesus is discipling His disciples, and He's pointing to the reality of His death as a necessary part of God's plan for salvation and the ushering in of the kingdom. Now, at this point, this isn't the first time that these disciples have heard it. It's the second time they've heard it in as many chapters, and so surely at this point the disciples get it, right? Wrong. They still don't get it. And by the way, just as kind of a side note, when you're discipling someone else, this is a great reminder of the patience that is required for discipleship, isn't it? You know, if you're saying, man, I, I just don't know what's with this person, I don't even tell them once, I told them twice how important it was to be at church, and they're still inconsistent in coming to church. I just, I don't know, I give up. I told them twice, I don't know what more I can do. If, if Jesus, the greatest discipler who ever lived, is being patient with his disciples, how much more are we going to be, have to be patient as we're discipling other people with the truth? So it's a great reminder of this because the disciples completely missed what Jesus was teaching to them. Verse 32, after being taught by the greatest discipler who's ever lived, the Son of Man Himself, after being taught the gospel by Christ, verse 32 says, but they did not understand the saying. And, and not only did they not understand the saying, but they also were afraid to ask. Maybe they remembered what happened with Peter earlier, and they said, boy, I don't want that kind of response from Christ, so I'm just going to not ask at all. But the fact of the matter is that even though these disciples had ears to hear, they weren't listening. In fact, as the rest of the text reveals, not only were they not listening, but they were not very concerned about understanding what Jesus was teaching anyway. They were focused on something else. In fact, what we're going to see in this text is that these disciples in this moment they missed the greatness of the cross because they were focused on their own personal greatness. What, what was the impediment here? What, what was it that got in their way so that they couldn't understand these things or wouldn't understand and respond to these things? 
It was their pride. I mean, what, what a reminder of the dangers of pride in our life. Even as believers, even as those who have been given through the, the regenerating work of the Spirit, we've been given ears to hear God's truth. We've been given a new heart with God's law written on it so that we can respond to God's truth. And, and, and yet, even in the course of this life, with all these gracious benefits the Lord has given to us, our pride so often hinders us from responding appropriately to the message of the gospel in our lives. And these disciples were no different. It was their pride that got in the way. And really, this passage, it confronts the pride in our lives that would cause us to miss the greatness of the cross. Even in the way we define greatness, See, fallen human nature, a fallen human perspective, it equates greatness with things like prominence. If you get the most attention, you must be the greatest. If you're up in front of everybody, you must be the greatest. I mean, this goes all the way back to our school days. Whoever's the most popular, they're, they're the coolest kid. They're the greatest. For some reason, we attach prominence to greatness in our minds. Or, or if not prominence, then power. We live in a world that assumes that if someone has great power, they must be a great person. Or maybe it's not power, maybe it's prestige, what people think of you. You live your whole life bound up by fear of man because you're trying to create an image of yourself. You want people to think a certain thing about you because if there's a certain prestige that goes with you that you know, you're a great dad, or you're a great mom, or you're great at this, or you're great at that. If you have this prestige associated with you, then that means you're great. Or if we wanted to add a, a, another item on the list of, of human, earthly, fallen views of greatness, we could add profits, just money. For some reason, we continue to see in the public view that the miserable lives that the filthy rich people live, and yet we still associate happiness and greatness with having lots of money. You know, so, so somebody uh, says they're miserable and they got all this money in the world, and, and people say, I just don't understand that. How could that be? You know, you see on the news of, uh, uh, of an extremely wealthy and, and famous person committing suicide, and you just say, wow, they had everything in the world. Their life was so great. Why did they do that? Of course, the answer from a biblical perspective is that's a wrong view of greatness, isn't it? And as we come to this passage, what we see is that the cross, it redefines greatness for us because Jesus emptied Himself of all the things that we usually associate with greatness. He emptied Himself of all human prominence. He emptied Himself of all human power. He emptied himself of all human prestige, and certainly through the life he lived and the death he died, he emptied himself of all human prophets. And yet what he did was the greatest thing that any man has ever done. It's the greatest event in the history of the world. 
And that's why as we gaze at the cross, we realize that the cross, it not only saves us by believing in the cross, we are saved from our sins that we might have fellowship with God, but also through these gospel implications, it now begins to change even the way we think about what is great. Specifically, what I'd like you to see this morning is that the greatness of the cross reveals two defining features of greatness. In other words, if you think that the gospel is great, then your definition of greatness must be shaped by the gospel, and here are a couple of defining features of what that greatness is. And we see the first of these defining features in verses 33 through 35. Here we see that The greatness of the cross requires humility. Humility. See, sinful and fallen pursuits of greatness rarely traverse the path of humility. In this world, people seek greatness through self-promotion. I've got to get my name out there. I've got to make myself famous. I've got to get attention for myself. Social media in our day and age has helped us show how prominent a problem that is. You know, why are we posting all these things? Well, we want the attention. And if we're not careful, behind all those things is, is a heart of self-promotion or attention-grabbing. Or, 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 or maybe, to go in a different direction, rather than traveling the path of humility towards greatness, We'll often travel the path of self-defense. Somebody comes and says, look, brother, I I see this in your life. I'm not sure that matches with Scripture. In fact, I'm pretty sure it doesn't. Rather than in humility examine our hearts and receive that, what do we want to do? We want to defend ourselves. We want to defend ourselves. Or or we want to work to create an image of of who we are that's that's molded by a human view of greatness. And and, in all these things, and certainly we could come up with more, But in all these things, the the common denominator in all earthly pursuits of greatness and glory is pride. And yet, as we come before the cross, we see that true greatness, at least true greatness in God's evaluation, which is the only greatness that matters, true greatness can only be attained through humility. Look at verse 33. It says, and they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? Now, in all likelihood, this is the last time that Jesus and his disciples were gathered together at this home in Capernaum. Remember, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, and and so now they're gathered together at kind of their home base, which may have even been Peter's home, and they're gathered together one last time before they leave for Jerusalem. But, but before they left, Jesus needed to adjust the perspective of these disciples. And so he asked them this question, what were you discussing on the way? And of course, even the fact that Jesus asked the question, it, it hints at a gentle rebuke, doesn't it? it? It hints at a rebuke, but because what they were discussing wasn't in line with the gospel that he was teaching. Well, well while he had privately taught them about his death on this journey, instead, they were talking about and thinking about something totally different. So, verse 34, Jesus asked this question. In verse 34, it says, But they kept silent. 
Why did they keep silent? Because they knew Jesus wasn't going to like the answer. By the way, here's another helpful aside for especially you children and young people in the congregation. Sometimes you get in a situation where if you tell the truth, you'll get in trouble. And if you tell a lie, you know that's wrong and your conscience won't let you do that. And so what you just do is say nothing. Or maybe if you're older and a little more nuanced in your thinking, you say, I don't know. You're not answering the question truthfully because you think it'll get you in trouble. That's what the disciples were doing. And that wasn't honoring to the Lord. They, they knew they knew that Jesus wasn't going to approve of what they were talking about. Here's why. It says, for on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Maybe this was tied to the fact that Peter, James, and John were the three that, that, that got to go up on the Mount of Transfiguration with Christ. Uh, maybe this is tied to the fact that in Mark chapter 9, verse 1, uh, uh, Jesus said, Truly I say, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And so they're thinking that means Jesus is going to set up his rule now, and so now they're jockeying for positions in the kingdom. In fact, James and John in the next chapter are going to bring their mom along with them and try and convince Jesus to, to make them essentially vice president and secretary of state. So these guys are, are jockeying for position. Whatever the details were, as Jesus walked ahead of them and contemplated his death, the disciples were lagging behind to plot their own glorification. In fact, it's interesting, all three of the passion predictions in chapter 8, 9, and 10, when Jesus discusses the details of his death, all three times what we read from the disciples is an outburst of pride and expectation rather than humble faith in what Christ is saying. They thought they were going to a coronation when Jesus was trying to prepare them for a crucifixion. They were disinterested in the humility of the cross because they were distracted by their own self-promotion. And in being in such a way, distracted by their own self-promotion, they betrayed that in their hearts they didn't truly understand the gospel. That's what verse 32 says, they didn't understand. And I think the way we could take that here is Chapter 8 reveals the Lord's already done a saving work, at least in Peter's heart. And so, when Mark tells us they didn't understand what Jesus is saying, I think the way that we can best take that is they didn't understand the full implications of it. They understood that Christ was the Messiah. They understood that Christ was their Savior. They understood that they had no hope of eternity and no hope of a relationship with God apart from Jesus. They understood those things, but when it came to the implications that trickle down to the nitty-gritty of life, like, you know, being humble, that's where they did not have a firm grip on the truth of the gospel. That's why they continued to respond to the gospel with attitudes of underlying pride. And just even as we think about that reality that you can understand the gospel in a saving way and yet not fully grasp its implications for your life, that motivates us to get back to the truth, doesn't it? To begin to see these implications work out so that the, the depth of our gospel understanding will, will go deeper so that the fruit of gospel grace in our life will grow stronger. 
That, by the way, is why Jesus, in verse 35, sat down and called the twelve to himself. Here, the, the, the sitting and the calling indicate that it's a formal time of teaching. Uh, today, in our culture, when, when, when we teach, we, we stand before you. It would be kind of awkward if I, as a guest preacher, came in and, and just sat on a chair the whole time holding my Bible and my notes. You would think, that's kind of weird. But, but in Jesus' day, that was the normal posture of a rabbi or a teacher. And so essentially, when the disciples see Jesus sit down and call them in, in their minds, I wasn't there, but I'm guessing in their minds it went something like this. Oh boy, here it comes. You know, I've got, I've got three daughters, as Chris mentioned. They know my voice. When I call them down from upstairs, they have a pretty good idea of what I'm calling them for and whether or not they're in trouble when I call them. Well, in the same way, as Jesus is gathering in these disciples, they know we're about to be confronted on something. We're about to be confronted on, on wrong thinking in some way. But, but notice, even when Christ had to confront the wrong thinking of the disciples, notice how gently he does it. He sits them down and calls them. What a, what a gentle shepherd we have. A, a shepherd who, who has not only laid down his life for the sheep, but a shepherd that when we begin to go astray and leave behind his truth, that he gently comes and brings us back to where we're safest. That's what's going on here. Jesus is not only a model discipler, but he's a model shepherd here. He's, he's the greatest discipler who's ever lived, and he's the greatest shepherd who's ever lived. And as he's shepherding his disciples, he wanted to change the way that they thought of greatness in light of the truth of the cross. You see, the disciples wanted to be great, but what they did not know was that being great means being last of all. That's what he says. If anyone would be first, that's what they wanted, then he must be last. That's what they didn't understand. You see, in the light of the gospel, True greatness is not measured by how much attention or, or prominence you have before other people. You understand, don't you, that prominence doesn't impress God. Prominence is, isn't going to put us or put God in debt to us in any way. Prominence has no way of earning us a right standing with God, of course, uh, but even in terms of pleasing the Lord as those who have already been made right by the gospel, our, our prominence, the amount of tension that we get from other people as we're serving and living our lives means nothing to the Lord. What does matter to the Lord is our humility, or as Jesus puts it, viewing yourself as last. That's what makes you great, humility. Having the mentality that, that, that your desires come last after God's glory and after loving your neighbor, that's humility. Humility is prioritizing the glory of God and love for your neighbor above your own desires and, and wants. And this kind of humility in God's eyes is great. And it's not just a way to greatness. Humility in God's economy is the sole way to greatness. And here's why. 
Humility is how we get grace. In God's kingdom, we're, we're never going to be great in any sense apart from the grace of God. And James chapter 4, verse 6 says that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. If we want grace, we have to humble ourselves to receive that grace. When, when we're acting in pride, what we're doing is we're resisting God's grace. When we're acting in humility, what we're doing is we're receiving God's grace. And so from a, from a human standpoint, humility is the sole way to greatness because humility is how we receive grace. And to this, we could also say, this is the pattern that Christ has set for us. Earlier, Pastor Chris read for you from Philippians chapter 2, where Christ emptied himself of, of the prerogatives of his divine power. Or maybe to put it more simply, he humbled himself took on the form of a man, form of a slave, and he died on the cross for us. Was that great? Yes, it was the greatest thing that was ever done. That humility defines what greatness is for us. This is what Christ modeled. This is what the Lord blesses. The greatness of the cross, it compels us to change our worldly perspective on greatness and understand that the one who is great is the one who is humble. Now, that leads us to a second defining feature of humility. See, second defining feature of humility that we find in this passage is this, that the greatness of the cross requires service. It requires humility you want to be great in God's eyes, you want to be useful in God's kingdom, it requires humility, but then secondly, it requires service. So the world thinks of a great man as someone whom people serve, not as someone who does the serving, and yet the cross completely flips this paradigm upside down, valuing service over being served. The child of God who spends his or her life serving others and serving the Lord, that is the one who is great in God's eyes. By the way, notice in verse 35, Jesus didn't condemn their ambition. He didn't say, guys, you shouldn't want to be great. Instead, he wants them instead to be ambitious for true greatness. God-honoring, neighbor-loving greatness. That's why he goes on to say, if anyone will be first, he must be last of all, and servant of all. You see, greatness requires that we serve others, that we, that we use our ambition to be ambitious to serve others, or as Paul says in Romans 12.10, we should be ambitious to outdo one another in showing honor to each other. You want to be ambitious for something, be ambitious to serve others and lift them up. That's the model that Christ set for us. In Mark 10, 45, in the next chapter, Jesus says that the Son of Man came not to be served. That'll happen at His second coming. But He says at His first coming, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Yeah, when Jesus comes back a second time, 
He will be served. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. He will be served in His kingdom for all of eternity, but He'll be served by those saints who were first served by Him. And in this, we catch a glimpse at true greatness. True grace is not a true greatness is not serving to get something, but serving to improve the spiritual condition of someone else, putting their spiritual needs before any needs that we might have. It means that our perspective must change from the constant consumer that our culture wants us to be into a sacrificial server that our Lord wants us to be. Actually, the word here for servant it's, it's the word we get deacon from. Diakonos is the word that Jesus used. And, and, and at the time, it had the, 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 the meaning or the connotation of somebody who waits on tables, a table waiter. Or maybe to put it in modern English as best as we can, a busboy. A busboy. What's a busboy do? A busboy comes in and cleans up other people's messes and nobody pays any attention to him. If if you need something, the busboy might come run and bring it to you and serve you, and then when you're gone, clean up all the mess after you. Jesus is equating greatness in his kingdom with what we would call a busboy. And really, you might even go so far as to say, that's all we are. That's all we're called to be. We're gospel busboys. We come in and we serve people the message of the gospel, and then with that same message of the gospel, with the truth of Christ, we help them clean up the messes of their life. That's what we've been called to do. And from an earthly perspective, there's nothing great about that. There's nothing glamorous about that. And yet from God's perspective, this is the very definition of what greatness is because it's what Christ has done for us. See, Jesus doesn't want us to ask, who will serve me? He wants us to ask, who can we serve? And, and, and the cross, it shows us that this is the path to greatness. But also the cross, it frees us up on this path to greatness. You don't have to worry, if you're a believer in Christ Jesus, you don't have to worry about who's going to love or who's going to serve or who's going to protect you because Christ has already served and loved and promised to protect you. You don't have to worry about getting outflanked. You don't have to watch your six. You can trust Christ and serve freely. The cross of Christ frees you up to do that. And not only does it free you up to do that, it demands that we do that. By the way, Jesus even gave an object lesson of what this looks like here. He says you need to be a servant of all. Clearly, I can't individually serve every person in the world. So what's he saying? Essentially, he's saying there's no categories of who you serve. You serve anyone the Lord providentially puts before you. Whether they can return the favor or not, you serve them. That's what all is. And Jesus demonstrated that by, by pulling this child into the midst of them. Now understand, in that culture, children weren't viewed as we view children today. If at times in our culture, we lift kids too high and make them too important, in that day and age, kids were almost treated in a demeaning and inappropriate way, especially in the Roman culture. And Mark wrote this gospel to saints in Rome they would have had a very low view of children. In fact, the great heroes of Roman history, you'll never read about their childhood. Why? Everybody was embarrassed about their childhood. 
It, 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 was, it was viewed as an embarrassing time that you don't want anything to be known about. We write biographies, we start with somebody's childhood. In Roman history, you would start with his first great public work as an adult. And so Jesus takes this child in who would have had little to no importance in the culture and says, if you welcome this person, you receive this person, you serve this person who can do absolutely nothing for you in return, that is what greatness is. That is what greatness is. Greatness is welcoming and serving those who can do nothing for you in return. This is what Christ has done for sinners through the gospel. If you're here today as a saved person, you are saved because you have believed in Christ Jesus. By faith, we, can, we who can do nothing for God are saved by God. He's welcomed us into His kingdom when we can do nothing in return for Him. The kingdom is made up of people who have been undeservedly welcomed, and the church must reflect that same perspective on greatness. We must welcome those who don't deserve it, welcome those who can't return the favor. That's when the church is the greatest. And and when we do this, by the way, when we we receive someone who can do nothing for us, essentially what we're doing is, is we're receiving Christ, and not only Christ, but we're also receiving the Father. In other words, as we are in humility serving others, we're walking in fellowship with God. The God who has saved us through the gospel, our fellowship with Him is deepened as we walk humbly and serve others. Maybe to summarize it, the greatness of the cross teaches us to serve others with no motivation to get something in return. That's what gospel greatness is. That's what kingdom greatness is. Greatness is sacrificial ministry. And we see this as we gaze at the cross. As I mentioned to you earlier, certain events have cast their shadow over all of history. They've changed the world forevermore. I trust that your life is filled with moments like that. And my prayer is that the cross is one of those moments. By believing in the cross, you will change your position in God's kingdom. Through faith in the work and person of Christ, we are saved, made saints, citizens of God's kingdom. But so too, by an ongoing and deepening faith in the cross, it will also change your perspective on life, specifically your perspective on greatness. As blood-bought, redeemed sinners, our perspective on greatness must change. Greatness is humility in service because that's what Christ has done and Christ is great. Amen? We pray with me? Lord, we stand here as forgiven sinners, confessing and praising you for your greatness. Lord, even as we prepare our hearts to observe the ordinance of the Lord's table, we're reminded of how great your work was, and we pray that that anyone who might be here who has not believed in the greatness of the cross would put their faith in you, Lord Jesus, that they might be saved. And we pray also for those of us who have believed in the work of the cross, we pray that you would deepen our faith and and help us to understand the ongoing implications of the gospel in our life. Lord, even now, pour out your grace upon us as we seek to worship you and follow you. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.